0: All right, Genesis chapter 13, we're going to just look at the whole chapter. Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him, to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Lot also uh, went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please, separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right, or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever, and I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And he built an altar there to the Lord. Thus far, the reading of God's word. All right, so we're back in Genesis, moving along, cruising at a nice little pace here. We're in chapter 13. We're only 19 lessons in, and we're 13, so that's not bad. The thing I like about the Old Testament is usually you could take these in somewhat larger chunks because they're more uh, narratives, and narratives uh, tend to be a little bit longer. But uh, last time, if you remember last time, two weeks ago, when we saw, last saw Abram, um, Abram had a bit of a crisis of faith, if you will, right? Abram was tested. His faith was tested. God called him out of his homeland, brought him to the promised land, Promised him, made a covenant, uh, made all these promises of land and descendants and blessing, and everything was going well until a famine hit the land. And it says it was a very severe famine, a very heavy famine. Uh, so Abram, in a probably a move that a lot of us would have made <laughs> if we were in Abram's sandals at the time. Uh, When there's no no food in the land, you go to where the food is, right? If there's no work in the area, you go to where the work is. So he leaves and goes to Egypt. But then uh, from the frying pan into the fire, Abram tells his wife, okay, now you're a very attractive woman, even though she's probably around 65 or so at this time. You're a very attractive woman. So we're going to have this little thing where you say you're my sister," which is not entirely false, or you know, it, it, it is true to a point. But the point is, is that he's hiding the fact that she's married to him. So he makes this uh, little uh, story up. And, uh, and, and everything that Abram has done basically has put the promise of God at risk. right? God said, "I will bless you." I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. I will make you a great nation. To your descendants I will give this land. And here is Abram. He's not in the land anymore. His wife has been confiscated by Pharaoh. And he's, yes, he's been blessed. He's been given a lot of wealth. uh, But he now, his wife is in Pharaoh's harem. How is he going to be a great nation without a wife from whom to make a great nation? Or with whom to make a great nation? So, now, thankfully, you know, where we are faithless, God is faithful, so God preserves his promise. God moves into action, uh, and the story ends up well as Pharaoh says, why didn't you tell me this was your wife, and, you know, I, we, this could have been really bad. So he says, here, take your wife, take your possessions, and leave. So Abram leaves and comes back home, and Lot with him. That's what we see here as we come into chapter 13. This is immediately following what we just saw at the end of chapter 12. Abram leaves Egypt and comes back to the promised land. So he returns to the promised land, and what we're going to see here now is Abram kind of tries to renew his faith a little bit, right? He, he goes back to where he had set a tent before. He goes back to where he had built an altar before and sort of rededicates himself, right? He kind of rededicates himself to the promises of God. Uh, We're going to see here a bit of a uh, kerfuffle between... um, I almost like that word, kerfuffle. Um, There's going to be a little bit of a a thing going on here between his herdsmen and the herdsmen of his nephew Lot as they have great wealth. Why? Well, because... Well, the Egyptians gave them great wealth, (laughs) and they come back to the Promised Land, and there's not enough grazing land for all of their their, uh, herds and livestock, so they have to figure out what to do about this. So that's what we're going to see here in this passage as uh, Abram um, rededicates himself, and you see him and Lot sort of part ways, amicably, of course, but they part ways from this point. And uh, really the theme for tonight is the faithful walk not by sight, they walk by faith in the promises and blessings of God. Because really when when it boils down to it, when you get the major decision point here uh, between Abram and Lot, Lot chooses based on what he can see. Abram chooses based on what he knows God has promised him. And and that's what we're going to see in this passage tonight. So I think I've got it uh, in five points. You're getting two bonus points tonight <laughs> in the, from the normal three. Five points tonight. Uh, don't worry, it won't go any extra, any longer than it normally does, uh, which is plenty long anyway, so <laughs> just kidding. All right, so first we're going to see here Lot and Abram return to the Promised Land in verses 1 through 4. So then Abram went up from Egypt, Ema's wife and all that he had, and Lot with him, to the south. Or if you have another translation, you might see there the Negev. The Negev is just a Hebrew word that means south. Um, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. One thing uh, before we get too, too far into this, you know, these city names, uh, oftentimes they're not the city names that they were originally when Abram was actually walking the promised land at this time. A lot of times you'll see these are the names of the cities as the Israelites would know them as they're coming into the promised land. But, um, In fact, you know, you get this little comment later on where Lot goes to the, you know, he chooses the Jordan plain, and it says the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah there. Of course, it says here, this is before the Lord destroyed them, right? We're going to get to that, you know, Lord willing, when we get to chapter 19, but, you know, again, remember, uh, Moses is writing this um, hundreds of years after the fact here, uh, as they're getting ready to enter into the promised land, so... A lot of the place names may be place names that they would know when Moses wrote this, as as opposed to what the cities were originally called. They may have been called Bethel and Ai. Uh, we sometimes they'll say it. You know, sometimes there will be like an editor's note. It's like it used to be called this or something. But anyway, uh, be that as it may. So after the incident in Egypt, right? Uh, Abram and his family here are returning to the promised land. And they're, they're coming with great wealth. And if you remember when um, Pharaoh took <laughs> uh, took Sarai from Abram, um, more than likely there was some negotiation and a price was paid, right? I mean, because it, it, it says that he gave him quite a bit. Um, he compensated him quite well um, Uh, In verse 16 of chapter 12, Pharaoh treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys and camels. So he paid Abram quite a pretty, you know, quote-unquote bride price, if you will, for his wife. Uh, So he leaves with all that wealth and comes back to the promised land. Uh, All the wealth that he acquired. And again, you know, think um, how this is kind of related to what the Israelites do as they leave Egypt for the exodus, right? We're told when they leave that they plundered the Egyptians, right? <laughs> you know, and here's their forefather, uh, the father of their nation, plundering uh, the Egyptians in a sense here. Um, one thing uh, we want to say here, of course, a tangential point, you know, Abram's very wealthy, the Lord has blessed him. Even though Abram didn't do much to deserve this, uh, in fact, he acted, you know, very unfaithfully. Uh, yet the Lord blessed him regardless. Uh, one thing is we need to understand is wealth is not a sin. Okay, being wealthy is not a sin. Loving wealth is a sin. <laughs> okay, uh, we often say money is the root of all evil, and we misquote that from First Timothy. It says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, is how the, the verse really goes. Love of wealth is a sin. Being wealthy is not a sin. God has blessed Abram, even though Abram didn't deserve this. Um, Abram was a very wealthy man. Uh, and he passed that wealth on to his son Isaac, who then passed it on to Jacob. Jacob was extraordinarily wealthy in livestock and cattle and servants and, and so on and so forth. But can lead to a lot of troubles, okay? Um, if, if uh, it, you know, there's all kinds of trials that can come from being wealthy, uh, just, as, just as there are trials that can come from being poor and destitute. And we're going to see part of that here uh, tonight. Now, Abram comes back. He comes back to the south area, the Negev, and then journeys back up to Bethel, which is in the middle area, if you have a map of, of the patriarchal period. Uh, Bethel would be close to where Jericho is, and Jericho would be right you know, as you cross the Jordan, um, uh, above uh, north of the Dead Sea. Um, you know, that's the path that the Israelites will take coming into the Promised Land. They'll go to Jericho, then uh, Bethel-Ai, and then they'll spread out from there. So he's in the middle of the Promised Land, so to speak, in the central area in Bethel. And we're told here, this is the place where he was before. Right? You can look at, I believe it's verse six or um, no, sorry, verse eight of chapter 12. And he moved from there, there being uh, in the place of Shechem. He moves from there uh, to the mountain east of Bethel. and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and AI in the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called in the name of the Lord. So as Abram comes into the promised land, Uh, He pitches his tent in Shechem, and then he moves to Bethel and pitches his tent between these two towns, Bethel and Ai, and he builds an altar there and uh, calls upon the name of the Lord, and that's exactly what he does when he comes back to Bethel. He comes back to Bethel, and he calls on the name of the Lord again, so he he is, in a sense, coming back to first principles, right? You know, oftentimes when, you know, you have a a faltering in your faith where you have a stumbling point in your life, in your Christian life, where uh, you fall into some kind of sin, oftentimes the thing you need to do is go back to basics. You need to go back to what you know. You need to go back to uh, familiar places where, uh, you know, you uh, called upon the name of the Lord and Abram goes back to, in a sense, first principles. He goes back to the altar that he built at the very beginning and sort of, in a sense, is rededicating himself. He realizes that he did not make a good showing when he was down in Egypt, right? Um, He was supposed to be a blessing to the nations, and his actions brought curses upon the people of Egypt. And you find out that Pharaoh uh, acts more nobly (laughs) more morally than Abram did. So Abram here, in a sense, is rededicating himself. He is going back to a God-word focus. He wants to reorient himself and, 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 and focus again on the God who promised all these wonderful things to him when he called him out of his homeland and brought him to this land. And if you know, you know how the Apostle James talks about it in his letter... In chapter 1, in that great passage in verses 2 through 4, where he says, The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Right? Abram's faith was tested, he failed the test, but we learn from these lessons, right? We learn from these times where our faith is tested and we fail. Uh, Think about what we saw uh, this morning when Jesus restores uh, Peter back to ministry. Peter had a test of faith, and he failed. He failed miserably, right? And Jesus told him he was going to fail, and he failed anyway. Uh, I mean, that's one thing to say, you know, to say, I'm going to do this, and then you fail. But it's another to have someone tell you, no, this is how you're going to fail, and then you still fail anyway. Um, But Peter learned from that. Peter learned from that experience. You could tell when you read his letters. You could tell uh, when you see his sermons in the book of Acts. You could tell how uh, Peter must have carried this with him and and learned from from this lesson. And Abram is learning from this lesson, too. God sends these trials, these tests, to strengthen our faith. James says, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And then steadfastness produces endurance. And endurance produces perfection or maturity or completeness of your faith. These trials that come into our lives that God allows into our lives are situations which will strengthen our faith, and we may fail, and oftentimes, those are the times you learn the most, right? You learn, probably learn more from a failure than you do from your successes, because when you fail, then you realize, okay, next time, you know, this is what happened when I failed. Now, you know, unfortunately, Abram's not going to learn his lesson, (laughs) Because in a few chapters, we're going to see Abram do the same thing again. And then we're going to see his son do the same thing again. (laughs) So so even though Abram's faith is tested, and he failed in uh, chapter 12, we still see he is rededicating himself. He's refocusing himself. And and again, these tests um, produce, like I said, they produce endurance. Endurance produces character. That's what Paul says in Romans 5. Uh, a tested character. It's as, as if your faith is in a crucible. It's being tried by fire and, and it becomes more pure. Um, but they also draw us to Himself, right? These trials, sometimes, even when we fail, they're a way then to draw us back to God, which is kind of what you see Abram doing here, right? He comes back to the promised land, he goes back to where he has an idol or, or an altar, and he Begins to call upon the name of the Lord again. So even though he failed, it's this this trial uh, sort of moved him to to refocus, to draw his attention um, back uh, to the Lord. Uh, Think of uh, how the psalmist talks about this in Psalm forty-two. In Psalm 42, now, this is a slightly different situation because here, the psalmist is battling what appears to be severe depression. You know, whether it's something generated from outside of himself or not. Um, but here, you see the psalmist, when all hope seems lost, what does he do? he turns to God, right? As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they continually say to me, where is your God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with a voice of joy and praise with a multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. So here you could see the, the psalmist in his darkness, in, in the dark night of his soul here when people are, are mocking him. Where's your God? When he feels dry, when he feels thirsty, when he feels as if God is not there, he cries out. My soul thirsts. I long for God. I long to to be back in in the courts with his people where we used to go with the multitudes to the house of God with joy. You get a similar um, thing in Psalm 84. Psalm 84, they use this for a worship song, I believe, verse 10, but um, uh, verses 1 and 2 in Psalm 84, how lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts, my soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord, my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Drop down to verse ten. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. So again, here you have the psalmist crying out to God, the psalmist desiring to to meet with God again, and you, know, you can almost maybe feel this is happening in Abram's life as he realizes I've failed. You know, the Lord has called me. He brought me to this land. I I. I left believing Him, and then when a the test came of my faith, I failed, I, I left the land of promise, and I put everything in jeopardy by my efforts. And God was faithful to me, even though I was faithless. So He comes back, and He rededicates, and He calls upon the name of the Lord, and He goes back to where He was at first. And we're about to see the Lord graciously renew The covenant promises at the end of this chapter, as he did previously uh, in verses 7 and 8, right? When Abram responds in faith and leaves his home and goes to the promised land, it says there in verse 7, the Lord appeared to him and said, To your descendants I will give this land to you. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So we're going to see the Lord renew his covenant promises. So now we see Abram and Lot quarrel in verses 5 through 7. So Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. So Lot made out well too when he was down there. Now the land was not able to support them, that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So, though the initial famine prompted Abram to leave the promised land and go to Egypt uh, in the first place, uh, apparently that famine must have subsided because now Abram and Lot are both there with all of their livestock, and, they're, and what they're finding out is there's not enough uh, grazing land to support both of these large uh, herds. And as one would expect when you have a lot of livestock in a small area, strife begins to break out, uh, Develop between the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abram. You, we'll see this repeat itself too, right? Uh, we'll see, I think there's a, an example where uh, Isaac, uh, when he's there, he's, he's dwelling and he digs a well and then, uh, the, you know, Abimelech and his people come and they kind of take the well and Isaac goes to another place and digs a well and then they try to confiscate that well and they have this strife because water is precious in that area uh, as you would expect. So there's strife here. And to further illustrate or uh, the problem here we also told that the Canaanites and the Perizzites dwelt in the land. We're, we're told this earlier in chapter 12 verse 6. The Canaanites were then in the land. Again a reminder of that these people that Israel is about to drive out still exist there. And there's a couple of problems that uh, come out of this. One, if you already have two large herds fighting over grazing land and there are still indigenous people there, well, they're fighting over the grazing land too. So the fact that the Canaanites and the Perizzites are there uh, just exacerbates the problem. But secondly, and more importantly, um, Abram is supposed to be the man of faith he is he is in a sense God's light in this world and and if there's strife between him and his family that doesn't exactly put a great witness forward to the Canaanites and the Perizzites who are in the land just as his actions in Egypt were not a good witness of God in that land so there's this there's strife between the herdsmen you've got the Canaanites and the Perizzites there. And, yeah, the parasites. And you've got all this happening in the land. You've got all these flocks, all these things, limited resources, and you've got strife developing here. Now, this is a new test from the Lord. Okay? The famine was a test of Abram's faith. This is a test of Abram's faith. Again, all things come from the Lord. We looked at this when we looked at the, the famine before how God is providential over all these things. God is providential over rain time and harvest and good time, you know. And, and, and lack and all these things this is from the hand of the Lord how is this going to be resolved how is Abram going to deal with this situation well right now we don't see the herdsmen handling it very well they're, they're arguing with one another over the limited resources all our lives in the flesh is a test of faith right? every day is a test of faith Every day you wake up, it's a test of your faith. You go out and you, you're harvesting or whatever, and you know, will your combine break down? Will your auger wagon break down? Will something break down? Are you going to have to deal with this? Is that going to be a test of your faith? Will it rain? Will it not rain? Is your crop going to grow? Is it going to dry out and get withered? Each day we get up is a test of faith. Will we trust in the Lord? Or will we trust with our eyes, will we trust with our feelings, will we trust with what we know of this world, or will we trust in the promises of God, will we trust in his word, will we, will we believe God and walk by faith, or will we believe our senses, our five senses, and walk by sight. Every day of our lives in the flesh is a test of faith. And the Christian life is a constant battle of sanctification. It truly is, in which we battle daily, right, with well, who are the three enemies of, of the Christian in, the, in this world? The world, the flesh, the devil, right? We struggle with these things every day, sometimes with all three of them <laughs> in the same day. Um, if you have a hymnal, I want to look at some stuff in the Heidelberg. I want to look at Lord's Day 33 which is page 870. Because after talking about, you know, this is in the part of thankfulness, after talking about why we do good works and how we're not saved by them, um, this Lord's Day talks about repentance. And mainly I want to look at uh, questions 89 and 90, but you know, in question eighty, it asks how many things does true repentance or conversion consist? In two things, the dying of the old man and the making alive of the new. So if you think about repentance as a process, it is a continual dying of the old man and a making alive of the new. And, you know, and both have to happen, right? You turn away from your sin and you turn toward Christ, right? You put off the old man, as Paul will say in many of his letters, and you put on the new man. It's not enough just to say, I'm not going to do these evil things or these wrong things. You have to then replace it with uh, virtuous behavior. You have to replace it with obedient behavior. Uh, it's the same reason why when you look at the law of God and you look at the commandments, even though many of the commandments are worded in a thou shalt not, whenever you see a thou shalt not, there's always implied a thou shalt. <laughs> and if there's a thou shalt, there's implied a thou shalt not, right? Thou shalt not murder. Okay, great. But then Jesus says, don't be angry with your neighbor. So what's the, what's the thou shalt? Well, love your neighbor, right? Treat them well. Give, be kind to your neighbor, even though they may hate you, you know, when, in doing so, as they'll say, quoting from the Old Testament, you you will heap coals upon their head, right? You you'll you, you'll frustrate them with your kindness, right? So, it goes on to ask, what is the dying of the old man? Well, a heartfelt sorrow for sin, causing us to hate and turn from it, always more and more. What is the making alive of the new man? Heartfelt joy in God through Christ, causing us to take delight in living according to the will of God in all good works. And then what are good works? Well, only those which proceed from true faith and are done according to the law of God, unto his glory, and not such as rest on our own opinion or the commandments of men. And then later on, we looked at this uh, last Sunday in Lord's Day 44. It's really just the next page over. Question 114, right? You know, we saw this last time. Well, can those who are converted, right? Because what does true conversion consist of? Dying of the old man, making alive the new. So can those who are converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? Well, no. Of course not. Even the holiest of men, while in this life, have only a small beginning of such obedience, yet so that with earnest purpose they begin to live not only according to some, but according to all the commandments of God. So, even though we will not see perfection in this life, we strive more and more for it. Even though we know that even the best of us will have such a small beginning, we still, with earnest purpose, want to obey this. Why? Because that's how we show thankfulness to God, by, by obeying his commandments. Because the commandments are really it's just a way of loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. Question 115, why then does God strictly enjoy the, the Ten Commandments upon us, since no one in this life can keep them? And like I said, we saw this last week, but uh, first, that as long as we live, we may learn more and more to know our sinful nature. Right? I mean, when you're, if you remember a time when you weren't a Christian, did you care about the commandments of God? No, absolutely not. <laughs> Um, you didn't care. You know, you may have had some moral code that you lived by, but you know, you would say, "Well, certainly, I don't commit murder." But when you realize the deeper, you know, you know, are you angry towards your brother? Well, it's like, well, no, but I'm not killing him, right? So you're not you're not concerned about these things, right? But now, as you live life as a Christian, you look at yourself, and you really, I think, you know, the more you grow in your sanctification, the more you grow in your faith, you see how far you know how far you really do fall short right you may think wow i'm doing pretty good and then you realize no i'm not doing <laughs> as good as i thought i did right you know i like looking at paul's progression as he gets older how he describes himself he was the least of all the apostles he's you know and then he ends up as the chief of sinners at the end of his life <laughs> you know i'm i'm one who was yeah, I'm, you know, I was a murderer, you know, and then I'm the chief of sinners. Least of the apostles, chief of sinners. Um, That's what happens, right? You know, as as we, God enjoins the law upon us because as we look at it, we see our sinful nature. We detest our sin. But then also, we... um, Uh, As it says here, and so the more earnestly seek forgiveness. So it draws us to Christ, right? Because that's where our only hope is. It's not in doing better. It's not in trying harder. It's in running to the cross of Christ where you find the forgiveness of your sins. And then without ceasing, we diligently ask God for the grace of the Holy Spirit that we may be renewed more and more after the image of God until we attain the goal of perfection after this life so um, the christian life is a constant battle with this sanctification as the holy spirit is working in us and conforming us and more and more we're putting off sin and putting on the lord jesus christ and when we fall we 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 more and more hate our sin right and the lord you know i think through these tests and through this sanctification is shaping Abram in his life, right? He has the test earlier, and he fails, and now he's put to another test here. How is he going to respond to this test? Well, that's what we see in verses 8 and 9 as Abram and Lot begin to negotiate. So there's strife with the herdsmen. Abram turns to his nephew and says, Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right, or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, wouldn't be well watered after that point. <laughs> um, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go toward Zoar. So we see here, Abram is going to acquit himself well in this test. Right? Abram failed the test at the end of Genesis 12. Here, Abram acquits himself well. Now, there's no strong indication here. There's a hint, perhaps, that Abram and Lot might have been fighting. Uh, It may be implied in verse 8, let there be no strife between you and me, Uh, though the text earlier just says it was the herdsmen that were arguing. But the point is, here, Abram, in a sense, is being a peacemaker. He's the older one, right? He's the uncle. Lot is his brother's son. Lot has sort of been tagging along wherever Abram's been going this entire time. It's, you know, you don't really see a lot about Lot. No pun intended, a lot about Lot. You will later, but every time Lot is mentioned, it's always in conjunction with Abram. Abram goes here, and Lot went with him. Abram goes there, and Lot went with him. Abram goes back, Lot went with him. So, Abram's the older man. In fact, Abram could say, look, I'm the one who God called. I'm the one who was promised this land. I'll pick first. I'll take the best of the land. You can have the leftovers. That's not what Abram does. Abram graciously offers Lot first choice. He's a peacemaker, right? Proverbs 15.1 says, a soft word turns away wrath, right? Uh, Matthew 5, verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. (laughs) You know, uh, Romans 12, 18, as much as depends upon you, live at peace with all men. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Think not more highly of yourselves, but think more of other people, right? Humble. uh, Humility, thinking of others more important than yourself, being a peacemaker. And part of being a peacemaker is he goes to his nephew and says, take your pick. You want to go here? If you go here, the thing is we can't stay together because our herdsmen are fighting. So if you want to go there, then I'll go here. If you want to go here, then I'll go there. Abram is stepping out in faith. Abram is trusting the Lord to provide for him and his family. He is offering him wherever Lot wants to go. And Abram's like, I'm going to trust in the Lord that the Lord will provide For me in this situation. And as the Lord has made promises to Abram, uh, He has made good and precious promises to us, if only you trust Him and walk by faith. Just as the Lord promised Abram to you, I'll give your this land, I'll give it to you and your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. God has made promises to us too, right? God has made promises that Christ will return and that we will be glorified, that we will. Uh, rule with him, that we will live with him forever, that we will, uh, that this, this world is, is passing away, that the, the, the light and momentary afflictions that we're going through are worth an eternal weight of glory. God has made all of these promises to us in Christ. So if, if God can be trusted back in that day with Abram, he can certainly be more trusted in our day because we are looking at this after the cross. After we've seen God give his best for us in his son, Jesus Christ. Abram is very early in the stages of redemptive history. The only thing he has to go on is a vocal promise that the Lord spoke to him. I will give you this land. That's it and that the nations will be blessed through you, and that I will make you a great nation, and so on and so forth. But all he has, he doesn't have a Bible that he can go back to. He doesn't, have, he doesn't even have an Old Testament. right? He has nothing except the word that the Lord spoke to him. And that was enough at this point for Abram. He steps out in faith. And think about how much more we have than Abram had, right? We have this. We have a cross that we can look back at and see. God keeps his promises. God promised Jesus all the way back here in Genesis 12, right? And God, and we know now that Jesus came, right? And that Jesus went to the cross and that Jesus died for our sins and that he will return for us so we can trust him too. So now, fourthly, Abram and Lot separate, verses 10 through 13. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan. And Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Lot dwelt in the land of Canaan, and uh, Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord now it's easy to be I think it's always easy to read something and you're like well you know why would you do that lot you know why would you go there right but you know sometimes it's you know I don't want to be too hard on lot I mean in second Peter 2: 7 Peter calls him righteous lot I'm like ugh, I'm not sure about that but if Peter says it and Peter was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then Lot was a believer. He was kind of a weak believer, but he was a believer. Righteous Lot. Um, Lot. Yeah. Yeah, no, I know. That's why I don't want to be too hard on Lot. <laughs> no, that's absolutely correct. That's why I don't, you know, it's easy to, to criticize, but then I realize it's like, well, if the Lord can call Lot righteous, then, you know, he can certainly call us righteous as well. And it's not going to be righteous in ourselves. It's certainly not anything Lot has done. Um, but here, you know, Lot makes his choice on what he sees, right? Verse 10, And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw. So here, Lot is operating on a walk-by-sight kind of basis, right? I lifted up my eyes and I looked toward the plains of the east, and it was well watered. It was beautiful. It was like the garden of the Lord. It was like the land of Egypt. You know, and the land that they just left, right? They just left Egypt. So here, he is making his choice based on what he sees. Now, we're not sure exactly where this is. This is certainly east of the Jordan River. Um, some believe that it might be, like, uh, southeast of the Dead Sea in that area there. But it's somewhere east of the Jordan River because we're told that Lot goes east, right? He goes eastward uh, from there. But whatever the case may be, wherever this is exactly, it is a well-watered plain. And Lot makes his choice based on what he sees. It's like, Abram's like, okay, well, you're going to give me a choice? I'm going to choose the good land. I'm going to go where it looks well-watered. I don't have to worry about a famine. It looks as good as the land of Egypt, where we just came from. So I'm going to go there. So he makes his decision and journeyed east. Again, don't read over that too quickly, right? If you think about going eastward, that is always used, so far that we've seen it, as moving away from God, okay? When Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, they were cast east of Eden. When Cain was cast away from Adam and Eve, he went east to the land of Nod. East is is where the entrance to the temple would be, so if you're going eastward, you're going away from the temple. If you're going westward, you're going toward the temple through the east entrance. So this idea of going east is away from God, but more importantly, he's going away from the land of promise. He's going away from Abram, in whom the Lord said, those who will bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He's moving away from the sphere of Of blessing. Abram stays in the promised land. So Lot chose to go east. Abram stays in Canaan. He stays in the promised land and pitches his tent uh, where he's at. But note what Lot does. He pitches his tent. Where does he go? He goes as far as Sodom. All right. So his tent is pitched out of Sodom. Now we're gonna we're gonna see a progression. With Lot, If you continue reading, right, if you look at um, chapter 14, verse 12, um, where uh, we'll get to this next time. But they also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom. So first thing Lot does is he pitches his tent near Sodom. Now he's dwelling in Sodom, and when you flip over to chapter 19, you see him at the gate of Sodom. It's like, well, what does that mean? That means he's a prominent figure in the city because if you're sitting in the gates of a city, you are there in a kind of a leadership position. That's where they made all the important decisions. We're at the city gates. He was, so he starts off as a sojourner near Sodom, then becomes a resident of Sodom, and then becomes like mayor of Sodom or, or a councilman in Sodom. Think of Psalm 1. psalm that opens the psalter. You'll see a similar progression there as well. Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Notice the progression there. You start by walking, then you start by standing, and then you, start, you end up sitting, right? That's, that's kind of what Lot is doing, right? He walks toward there, then he starts to stand there, and then he starts to sit there. <laughs> he is doing exactly what the psalmist here says, the man is blessed who does not do these things. What is his delight? His delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law he meditates day and night. You can almost put Abram and Lot's names in here. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so. They are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous." For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Now, I'm not saying that Lot's ungodly because, as we saw, he's righteous, but he's not delighting himself in the Lord, right? He's delighting himself in his eyes, what he sees, and he decides to dwell, to live, and then to sit in Sodom. Whereas we're told here, the men of Sodom were how wicked? Exceedingly wicked. <laughs> Remember from Ephesians, right? Exceedingly abundantly above all that we. Can. <laughs> they were exceedingly wicked. They were very wicked and sinful against the Lord, and we'll see them judged in a few chapters. When we walk by sight and not by faith, we trade in. Uh, we trade in the eternal for the temporal. Okay. Lot by going with his eyes is going for the temporal. He's giving up the eternal to, get, to try to grab something now. He wants to grab it now while it's there. Um, it's interesting, another parallel, right? Because uh, what did Lot do? He lifted up his eyes and saw the plains of Jordan. Think back to chapter 3 when the serpent deceives Eve. After telling her... What you know, did God say? Well, no, you're not going to die. He, he's doing this so that you know, he doesn't want you to be like him because uh, you'll be more like God if you eat the fruit. So after the temptation, what does Eve do? She looks at the fruit right, and sees, oh, that's, that's not a bad-looking fruit there. You know, it's, it saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, and she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate." It's very similar to what Lot is doing. He looks up, and with his eyes he saw the plains of Jordan. Wow, that's a nice looking plain down there. I bet you my cattle can, there's a lot of grazing land there, and oh, and there's a nice city there too, and I'll, I'll just pinch my tent outside the city. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> you know, Well, we'll see what can go wrong uh, very shortly. The Apostle John, told you we're not done with John, in his second letter, or first letter, sorry, in John's first letter, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Here John tells his readers, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Again, Lot. Righteous Lot, yes. But he succumbed to what his eyes saw. He had a love for the world. He he had the lust of his eyes here is what you have here. The lust of his eyes. He saw the plain that it was that it was rich and he reached out for it and he wanted that. When we walk by sight and not by faith, we fall into the same temptation that succumbed, uh, that Eve succumbed to, that Lot succumbed to. And we end up trading eternal things for temporal things, right? Because what does John say? Well, the things of this world that you're lusting after, are per- they're doomed to perish. They're not going to last, Because they're of this world, right? These things will not go into the world to come. They will perish. So that's Lot. Abram and Lot separate. Finally, let's look at the Lord renews his covenant in verses 14, basically the rest of the chapter. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the trees, or the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, built an altar there to the Lord. So just as Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the plains of the Jordan saw that it was well watered and wanted to go there, when he leaves, God tells Abram, now you lift up your eyes and look at everything you can see. Look in any direction. As far as your eye can see, I am giving that to you. I am giving that to you. This is the the second time uh, that the Lord has now, or the third time really, that the Lord has spoken to Abram Right? He didn't speak to him at all during the last section when he was in Egypt. But now because Abram stepped out in faith, now because Abram, in a sense, passed this test, the Lord speaks to him again and renews the covenant that he made to him earlier in chapter 12. The promises, he reiterates these promises. Abram's step in, of faith is met with another word from the Lord. And because Abram chose to be faithful, the Lord renews his covenant with Abram, says, "Look at the land. I promised you earlier that I will give it to you. I'm going to give it to you again." Yeah. 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 That's a good point. And because Abram here walked by faith, the Lord now says, "Lift up your eyes and look." The Lord renews the land promise here in verses 14 and 15, right? Earlier he said uh, in verse 7, the Lord appeared to him and said, to your descendants I will give this land and near. He says, look as far as your eyes can see. The land which you see I will give to you. And he tells him, walk through it. Walk through its length and its width. Everywhere you walk I will give it to you. He also renews the promise of the seed in verse 16 and I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. Right, He says, you will be a great nation, verse 2. I will make of you a great nation. Here he says, look at the dust of the earth. If you can number the dust, right? we remember when we looked at that before. It's like, you know, can you count the dust? It's like, no, I can't count the dust. There's a lot of dust, right? You know, Especially after harvest, you get all that corn dust in the air that makes me sneeze every time I go out and walk my dog in the morning. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of dust. It seems to pile up. Uh, every, time I, every time I pull my car out and I drive around, it I, like, feels like there's a little layer of dust in the car. and It's like, yeah, there's a little bit of Nebraska in my car there uh, as I go around. But uh, if you can number the dust, so your descendants could also be numbered. So he renews the land promise. He renews the promise of descendants. Now, the Lord had already unconditionally promised these things to Abram, right? But he reiterates them. To Abram, not because Abram is earning this, but it's to strengthen his faith. It's to show Abram that he is his shield, right? As you look in chapter 15, uh, verse 1 of chapter 15, where he's going to ratify a covenant with them here um, in chapter 15 when we get to that in a couple of uh, lessons. Uh, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Now, some translations may say there, and your reward shall be very great. I like this translation way much better because it says that the Lord is his reward. Not that the Lord will give him a reward. He is saying, I am your reward. Right? That's the thing, right? The, the, it, it's, it's the same thing with Christ, right? Paul says in Philippians 3, I don't want the Benefits that Christ gives me, I want Christ. <laughs> I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes by faith in him. Here, he's, he's reiterating his promises to strengthen his faith and to show Abram that I am your great reward. I am your shield. I am the one who called you. I'm the one who will preserve you. I'm the one who will protect you. I'm the one who will bless you because I have promised to bless you. Right? And it's the same thing. It's this thing that's going to carry on as we go through the Old Testament um, when uh, the Israelites are being pulled out of Egypt for the exodus. It, we're told that the Lord remembered the covenant that he made with Abram and Isaac and Jacob. And that's what, you know, he tells, you know, that's what he tells Moses. Go tell the people that I am the God of your fathers, the one who made the promise to Abram, to Isaac, to Jacob. I am working. I am moving. And Abram responds with praise as he builds, he moves to another place and builds another altar. So he's building all these altars, in a sense, kind of claiming the land for the Lord. So here we see, as we bring this to a close, Abram and Lot show the difference between walking by faith and walking by sight. Now, uh, as we said, great material wealth can be just as much of a test of faith as great hardship, right? Right? Both of them were blessed materially very much. And it was that that was the the point of strife here between the two uh, family members, between Abram and Lot. It was this uh, material wealth. And, you know, again, wealth is not a sin. Love of wealth is a sin. Uh, But wealth can also be a test of your faith. How will you use it? it? Will you use it for the kingdom of God or will it use you? Will it control you? Right, but again, here we have this idea of living in the gap between promise and reality. Again, uh, you know, I'm stealing that title; it's the title of a book. But um, Abram is given these promises, but he never sees the reality of these promises until the Lord Jesus Christ comes, and then Abram, you know, he says, "Abraham saw my day, and he rejoices." Right, but in Hebrews 11, we may have looked at this before but in Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 12, we're, we're told here, By faith Abram obeyed when he was called to go out to a place which he would receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, right? Dwelling in tents. We, that's what we're seeing here. He's moving from place to place. He's a nomad. He's moving from place to place, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise For he, Abram, waited for what? The city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. Even though God promised him the land and that promise was fulfilled uh, when the Israelites conquered the promised land at the end of Joshua, it says that all the promises that the Lord made have been fulfilled. Yet Abram is not looking for an earthly city. He's looking for a heavenly city whose maker and builder is God see that here, Um, even also dropping down to verse 16, now they desire a better, uh, that is a heavenly country, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them, then you see even further in chapter 12 of Hebrews, verses 18 and following, Now he's drawing on references to Sinai. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, and that burned with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the words should not be spoken to them anymore. That's Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai when God descends upon it. It shook the mountain. You heard trumpet blasts and storms and lightnings. Verse 24. They could not endure what was commanded. And as so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. This is author of Hebrews is saying, This is not the mountain you've come to, <laughs> okay? He's drawing a contrast. He says, You've come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Again, here, you know, Abram was looking for a heavenly city. The author of Hebrews says that we also look for a better city, a heavenly city. You know, chapter 12, verse 28, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken because this kingdom can be shaken. Um, Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and a godly fear. This is what living in the gap between promise and reality is. These things are promised to us. The new heavens and the new earth is promised to us, but we are living in this world, right? We see what's going on in this world. We we, uh, have to trust in these promises. This is our test of faith is to trust in these promises, to not look and walk by sight, but to walk by faith. Praise be to the Lord that our hope rests not in the strength of our faith, though. That's that's the important thing to keep in mind here, right? Because Abram's faith is going to wax and wane, right? We saw it fail last time. We see it strengthen and succeed here. We're going to see it fail again later. Uh, Abram is up and down, like we all are. Righteous Lot... Walked by sight, right? It's not the strength of our faith. It is in whom our faith is placed. Abram's weak faith was firmly grounded on our great God who calls us, who saves us, who blesses us, and who keeps us.